0: This is a Bloomberg Law special, the life, death, and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm David Weston. She was only the second woman in history to serve on the highest court in the land. Her 27 years on the Supreme Court continued a tireless fight to advance the rights of women, something she would pursued as one of the most effective advocates in the Supreme Court and on the Court of Appeals. She built a record as one of the most liberal justices, supporting gay rights, abortion rights and restrictions on the death penalty. Now Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. Ginsburg passed away from complications from pancreatic cancer surrounded by her family at her home in Washington. Over the next hour, we examine the life and legacy of the justice affectionately known as Notorious RBG, and bring you the view of her career in her own words, with excerpts from an interview conducted less than a year ago. But first, we welcome Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr and Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson for their reactions to the loss of of a legal giant. So let me start with you, if I may, Greg. Uh, What was her effect on the bench? How did she change the Supreme Court over her 27 years?
1: Well, it's it's hard to overstate the impact that she had. In part, because she became such an icon to the world, she was incredibly well known uh, and, and deeply admired by, uh, but by people on all sides of the of the, the political spectrum, but especially among uh, liberal people and and young women. Uh, she represented a woman who um, uh, was an incredibly bright, incredibly hard worker. Um, Somehow managed to be very good friends with one of the most conservative justices, Antonin Scalia, and really left a legacy, uh, particularly with regard to women's rights uh, and women's place, place in the law.
0: Again, Kimberly, we think of her, obviously, as a, a, a really important Supreme Court justice. But the fact is, if she had never been in the Supreme Court, she would have had a profound effect on the law, particularly with respect to women's rights, as an advocate for the NAACP and also at Columbia and then as, on the Court of Appeals. She had a very distinguished career, very effective career, long before she came to the Supreme Court.
2: That's right. And she's one of the few justices who actually was very noteworthy before she came to the bench. Uh, She co-founded the ACLU's Women's Rights Project, and in that role, she brought several cases that really um, led the way on how we now think of women's rights and gender equality, uh, not only on behalf of women, but she also brought several cases on behalf of men that really uh, changed the landscape uh, for the way that we think about gender and gender in the law.
0: Uh, Greg, as we say, she was the second woman uh, coming to the Supreme Court, uh, but but she really had an influence on the way women were regarded, basically, in the law and particularly on the Supreme Court.
1: She did. Uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the first one. For a short while, Justice Ginsburg was the only woman before Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan joined her. Um, she, uh, uh, you know, did it both through her opinions and, and, and probably the most uh, memorable of her opinions in the majority was uh, the one that said that the Virginia Military Institute had to admit women. Uh, but, you know, e- even more so, it was what she stood for, the fact that she uh, you know, made very clear that she wanted more women on the court, uh, that she was uh, such a tireless worker, um, and uh, that she became uh, really a heroine to uh, so many people in in this country.
0: Kimberly, uh, it's interesting. President Clinton once said about her that she was akin to uh, Thurgood Marshall uh, in the extent to which she changed the law. By the way, she said she did not like that analogy because Thurgood Marshall risked his life on the course uh, in the cause of uh, civil rights, and she did not do that. At the same time, uh, she does tower as a figure uh, that goes beyond even the Supreme Court of the United States.
2: Well, that's true, but it's it's interesting that we do think of her as such a towering figure, given that she is uh, such a small uh, person in stature. She really does. Um, really outshine her own stature uh, in in history. And you're right that many have compared her to Sir Gordon Marshall uh, based on the work that she had done at the ACLU on behalf of women's rights. Um, And so whether or not she enjoyed uh, that particular comparison, I think it's one we'll definitely continue to hear um, as her legacy uh, continues to grow.
0: She also, uh, just to be a little more personal about this, Greg, uh, she was part of a partnership. Uh, with Marty Ginsburg, a very, very distinguished, very respected uh, tax lawyer. And, And as diminutive as she was, and frankly, as quiet and shy, I spent a fair amount of time with her, she was not really outspoken. Marty was the opposite of that.
1: Yeah, he sure was. Uh, you know, he was a very engaging person. He was the the, the chef of the family. Uh, she admitted that she was a terrible cook, and he did most of the cooking. Uh, but as you said, they were a, a true partnership. And one of the stories uh, that was most told about her is is when she was in law school, uh, he uh, contracted cancer, and while he he was also in law school, and she uh, helped take care of him she went. She, she stayed on as a, as a law student, did her own studies, she went to his classes, took notes for him, uh, and she took care of their young daughter all at the same time. Uh, and when it came time for her to be in the spotlight on the, the Federal Appeals Court and then the Supreme Court. He was her biggest supporter and couldn't have been more proud of her. And that was part of one of, the, of what people loved about Ruth Bader Ginsburg was that she showed uh, both that a woman could have an incredibly successful career and have a very uh, loving
0: marriage. Okay, many thanks to Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr and Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge-Robinson. We'll hear more from them later in the program. But first we'll hear from the justice herself, the challenges and the accomplishments Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the justice faced in her own words. That's straight ahead on this Bloomberg Law Special. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Law Special, the life, death, and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm David Weston. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away at the age of 87. She died from complications from pancreatic cancer surrounded by her family at her home in Washington. Ginsburg's 27 years in the High Court were marked by notoriety, challenges, and sometimes controversy. In October of last year, she sat down for an extended interview with David Rubenstein on his show, Peer-to-Peer Conversations, and they looked back at her body of work and the mark she made on U.S. law. We bring you some of that conversation now. Here's David Rubenstein speaking with Ruth Bader Ginsburg just last year.
3: Now, in your Harvard Law School class, you did extremely well, and you got onto the Harvard Law Review, and uh, you were near the top of your class, maybe first or tied for first in your class, but then when your husband uh, needed to move to New York, um, you wanted to transfer to Columbia Law School, and the dean of the Harvard Law School didn't think that was such a great idea if you wanted to be a Harvard graduate, is that correct?
4: Yes, he said I had to spend my third year at Harvard. The reason I didn't was Marty was diagnosed with a testicular tumor in his third year of law school. Those were early days for cancer cure. There was no such thing as chemotherapy. There was only massive radiation. We didn't know whether he would survive And I didn't want to be a single mom, because Jane, my daughter, was 14 months when I started law school. So we wanted to stay together as a family. Marty had a good job with a firm in New York. And so I asked the dean, I thought it would be an easy answer, if I successfully complete my legal education at Columbia, may I have a Harvard degree? absolutely not, you must spend the third year here. I had the perfect rebuttal, because there was a Cornell classmate of mine who had had her first year of law school at Penn. She transferred into our second year class, and I said to the dean, well, Mrs. Isselbacker will be will have her second and third year and will earn a Harvard degree, but it's, I think, universally understood that the first year of law school is by far the most important. She has year two and three, I have year one and two. It should make no difference, but I was told a rule is a rule, and that was So you that. went
3: to Columbia Law School, and your law degree is from Columbia, is yes. right? Okay, and you did extremely well at Columbia Law School on yes. the review there as well. Yes. So, on the Harvard Law Review and the Columbia Law Review, you were flooded with job offers from the major <laughs> law firms. <laughs>
4: <laughs> there wasn't a single firm in the entire city of New York that would take a chance on me. And I have said I had three strikes against me, when I was Jewish, and the Wall Street firms were just beginning to welcome Jews. Then I was a woman, but the absolute killer, I was a mother, because my daughter was four years old when I graduated from law school. So employers who might take a chance on a woman were not prepared to take a chance on a mother.
3: So one of your law professors, Professor Gunther, got you, um, after many uh, efforts, a clerkship with Judge Palmieri. Yes. Was that easy to do for him because you were a mother?
4: Yes, he had no qualms about a woman. He had had a, a woman as a law clerk before, but he was concerned. Southern District of New York is a busy court, and sometimes, he would need a law clerk's aid even on a Sunday. So Professor Gunther, I found out about this years later, I didn't know at the time, said to Judge Palmieri, give her a chance and if she doesn't work out, there's a young man in her class who's going to a downtown firm, he will jump in and take over. And that was the carrot. It was also a stick, and the stick was, if you don't give her a chance, I will never recommend another Columbia student to you. Wow. That's, how, that's how it was for women of my vintage Who's Getting the first job was powerfully hard.
3: So after your clerkship, you ultimately got a position as a law professor at Rutgers
4: Yes, with an interlude when I was working for the Columbia Project on International Procedure.
3: And how did you get connected to the ACLU and and your your trailblazing uh, efforts in gender discrimination and gender law?
4: It came about first from my students at Rutgers who wanted a course on women and the law. So I repaired to the library, and inside of a month, I had read every federal decision ever written about gender-based distinctions in the law. It was no mean feat, there was precious little. And at the same time, new complaints were coming into the New Jersey affiliate of the ACLU, complaints of the kind the ACLU had not seen before. One group of complainants were public school teachers who were put on so-called maternity leave when their pregnancy began to show because the school district worried. We don't want the little children to think their teacher swallowed a watermelon. (laughs) These women were the leave was unpaid, and there was no guaranteed right to return. They began to complain. So it was the two things coming together, the students wanting to learn about the women's status under the law, and these new complainants coming to the ACLU. And for me, it was such a tremendous stroke of good fortune. Because up until the start of the 70s, it simply wasn't possible to move courts in the direction of recognizing women as people of equal citizenship stature.
0: That's Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg speaking with David Rubenstein in October of last year. She passed away this week at the age of 87. Stay tuned for more from Justice Ginsburg as we look back on the legacy left by her 27 years on the high court. That's coming up on this Bloomberg Law Special. I'm David Weston and this is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Law Special, The Life, Death and Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm David Weston. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away at the age of 87. She died due to complications from pancreatic cancer surrounded by her family at her home in Washington. Ginsburg's 27 years in the high court were historic, to say the least. She fought tirelessly to advance the rights of women. She built a record as one of the most liberal justices supporting gay rights, abortion rights, and restrictions on the death penalty. In October of last year, she sat down for an extended interview with David Rubenstein on his show Peer to Peer Conversations, looking back at her body of work and the marks she made on U.S. law. Let's bring you more of that conversation now. Here's David Rubenstein speaking with Ruth Bader Ginsburg just last year. You won a number of cases
3: for the ACLU on gender discrimination and became quite well known. You later taught at Columbia, but um, you were asked to go on to the uh, U.S. Court of Appeals of the District of Columbia uh, by President Carter. Were you surprised to get that appointment? Did you want to be a judge or were you happy to be a professor?
4: President. Carter deserves enormous credit for what the federal bench looks like today. When he became president, he noticed that the federal judges all looked like him. That is, they were all white and they were all male. And Carter appreciated that that's not how the great United States looks. So he was determined to put women and members of minority groups on the federal courts in numbers, not as one-at-a-time curiosities. I think he appointed over 25 women to district court judgeships, and 11 11 women to courts of appeals, and I was, I think, the last of the lucky 11.
3: So you served 13 years on the Court of Appeals in the District of Columbia. And after 13 years, did you think you had a chance to be on the Supreme Court, or do you think this was something that might never happen?
4: No one thinks my aim in life is to be a Supreme Court justice. It just isn't realistic. There are only nine of us. And luck has a lot to do with who are the particular nine at a particular time. So growing up, I never had an idea of being any kind of a judge, because as I said, women were barely there on the bench. When, when Carter became president, there was only one woman on a federal court of appeals. She was Shirley Hofstetter on the Ninth Circuit. He made her the first ever Secretary of Education, and then there were none again. Carter changed that, and no president ever went back. The way it was. Reagan didn't want to be outdone by Carter, so he was determined to put the first woman on the U.S. Supreme Court. He made a nationwide search and came up with a spectacular choice in Justice Sandra Day O'Connor.
3: When President Clinton became president, um, you were obviously somebody being considered, and then President Clinton talked to somebody who was pushing for your appointment. Daniel Patrick Moynihan, and President Clinton said, well, women don't want her. Now, how could that have been the case when you were the leading lawyer in gender discrimination? Why would women have not wanted you, or some women not wanted you on the Supreme Court?
4: Just some women, uh, most women uh, were overwhelmingly supportive, overwhelmingly supportive by nomination. But I had uh, written a comment on Roe v. Wade, and it was not 100% um, applauding that decision. What I said was, the court had an easy target because the Texas law was the most extreme in the nation. Abortion could be had only if necessary to save the woman's life. Doesn't matter that her health would be ruined, That she was the victim of rape, boy, and says, I thought Roe v. Wade was an easy case and the Supreme Court could have held that most extreme law unconstitutional and put down its pen. Instead, the court wrote an opinion that made every abortion restriction in the country illegal in one fell swoop, and that was, not the way that the court ordinarily operates. You know, it waits. It it waits till the next case and the next case. Anyway, it was that 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 some women felt that I should have been 100 percent in favor of Roe v. Wade, and I, because I wasn't.
3: Right. Okay. So the President uh, Clinton met with you, and obviously had a good meeting, and he offered you the. Uh, appointment, and the confirmation went pretty well, would you say?
4: 96 to 3, yes, I'd say that was...
0: (laughs) That's Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg speaking with David Rubenstein in October of last year. She passed away this week at the age of 87. Stay tuned for more from Justice Ginsburg, plus a preview of what's sure to be a contentious fight to name her replacement. That's coming up on this Bloomberg Law Special. I'm David Weston, and this is Bloomberg. This is a Bloomberg Law Special, The Life, Death, and Legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I'm David Weston. Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away at the age of 87. She died from complications from pancreatic cancer surrounded by her family at her home in Washington. Ginsburg's 27 years in the high court were marked by notoriety, challenges, and sometimes controversy. In October of last year, she sat down for an extended interview with David Rubenstein on his show Peer-to-Peer Conversations. We bring you our final installment of that conversation now Here's David Rubenstein speaking with Ruth Bader Ginsburg last year. Now been
3: on the court for 26 years, and therefore total, you've been on the federal judiciary for 39 years. So, on 26 years on the Supreme Court. When you first got on the court, were the other justices saying, "We're happy to see you here. Let's go have dinner together. Let's socialize," or were they just kind of standoffish mm-hmm. a bit? And what was your relationship with? Uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, like when you got on the court as the second woman on the court?
4: The, the court was not an, an unknown territory to me. I mean, I worked at the Court of Appeals just a f- few blocks down the road. Um, and every once in a while, Judge David Bazelon, who was quite senior, would would call me and, and say, Ruth, we're going to Cronheim's for lunch who was Crownheim? he was the biggest liquor distributor in the D.C. area. And before we went to his warehouse, we would stop at the Supreme Court and pick up Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall. Um, I knew Justice Scalia from our Court of Appeals days together. I knew Justice Clarence Thomas, who was also on the D.C. Circuit. But Sandra was as close as I came to having a big sister. You know, I did have a big sister, but she died in my infancy, so I never knew her. Justice O'Connor was the most welcoming, he gave me some very good advice, not only when I was a new justice, but during my first cancer bout, because Justice O'Connor had breast cancer and she was on the bench nine days after her cancer surgery. So she was very clear about what I had to do. She said, Ruth, you have your chemotherapy on a Friday. That way you'll get over it during the weekend. You can be back. The best
3: way to uh, win a case, if you're arguing one before the Supreme Court, is it to write a great brief, to write a, uh, to be a great oral advocate? Does the oral argument really make a difference, or does the brief really make a difference, or what's the best way to win a case in the Supreme Court for somebody who might want to argue a case?
4: To have a case that's strong on the merits. No, an oral argument at the court is not a debate. Um, I'd say of the two components of appellate advocacy, the brief is by far the most important. It's what we start with and what we end up with when we go back to chambers. Oral argument is fleeting.
3: Now the court meets from October to June, more or less. So what do the justices do in July and August? Do they sit around reading briefs or do they do other things?
4: One business that follows us all over the world throughout the year is the death penalty business, which the court treats like a firing squad. Very often, when an execution date is set, there's an 11th hour application for a stay. No one justice is responsible for the final vote. We all are polled wherever we are in the world. But in addition, most of us take some time off to teach.
3: So um, today, uh, when you are um, thinking about the court, what is it that gives you the greatest hope for the future about the court and the way it works?
4: I think that all of us revere the institution for which we work and we want to leave it in as good shape as we found it.
0: That's Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg speaking with David Rubenstein in October of last year. She passed away this week at the age of 87. For some final thoughts on Justice Ginsburg's legacy, we welcome back now Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr and Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson. So, Kimberly, let me start with you. I mean, this is a terrible loss for the court, for the nation, I think it's fair to say. Whatever you thought, whether you agreed or disagree with her, she was a towering force. At the same time, life goes on. The Supreme Court goes on. What comes next? Particularly, we now have the Majority Leader Mitch McConnell already saying, they're going to vote on a nominee for President Trump while President Trump is in office before the the election's over.
2: Right. And the timeline to the election seems pretty close to be able to confirm someone uh, before the upcoming election. So we're looking uh, for someone potentially in a lame duck session and potentially um, with an administration that's on its way out. Uh, Nevertheless, Mitch McConnell has said that he is going to give uh, any Trump nominee a vote, and it is sure to be a firestorm here in Washington, D.C. Um, of course, many people may remember that in 2016, as President Obama was getting ready to leave the White House, Republicans famously left open a, a nomination that Mayor Garland had been uh, nominated to, and so we'll likely see a lot of references to that and um, some questioning about how this isn't the same, although we've already seen Mitch McConnell try to uh, come out and say that these situations are different.
0: Yeah, Greg. story. Obviously, the, the Merrick Garland case will be talked about quite a bit, given what happened there and the very prolonged delay in considering that. The Supreme Court doesn't get involved in politics, at least tries to stay not involved. But at the same time, the Supreme Court does not like to be the center of political controversy. They are not comfortable being in that place.
1: No, they're absolutely not. And, uh, you know, one would imagine the court will try to lay low as best it can uh, in in the short term, at least. But it's really not up to the court right now. The court is going to be a political issue because so much is at stake with this seat. Uh, and especially given that it's happening, uh, you know, just a few weeks before a presidential election with all the controversy that Kimberly was talking about how uh, about with regard to how uh, President Obama's selection of Merrick Garland. Uh, wasn't even taken up by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. Uh, so the court is going to be a political issue and a huge political issue, whether it likes it or not.
0: Kimberly, it's, it's too early to start speculating, but we'll do it anyway. This has put a lot of pressure on President Trump to pick a woman. Of whatever particular uh, judicial constraint she is, a woman is a practical matter.
2: Well, perhaps. We have seen that uh, historically Supreme Court seats have been dubbed for certain uh, kinds of nominees, and it may be that the Trump administration feels pressure to nominate a woman. We already have several lists from President Trump uh, naming potential nominees, and there are a number of women on that list who uh, fit the credentials for being a Supreme Court nominee. And so uh, it'll be interesting to see where that develops.
0: Yeah, Greg, at the same time, as we look at Supreme Court nominees, there's some history here of presidents trying to pick nominees who will vote a particular way and getting surprised. In fact, it's possible the Republicans are quite surprised right now by the chief justice.
1: Yeah, probably very surprised by the chief justice and maybe a little bit by Justice Gorsuch, uh, at least in, in one big case, uh, uh... last term the case that said that federal job discrimination law covers sexual orientation and gender identity uh... there may be even more pressure to assure that this nominee will for example vote to overturn the roe v wade abortion rights ruling the problem for republicans will be just that they don't have a whole lot of margin for error here they have a majority in the senate they can get a nominee through uh... but they don't have the the luxury of time to really vet a nominee to know exactly what he or she thinks. Uh, And if something goes wrong with a nomination and that person doesn't have the support, that may be the one and only chance they have to get somebody on the court.
0: And, Kimberly, finally, there were reports, actually, that uh, uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg left behind a message that said she hoped that the next president would choose her successor.
2: Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg has not been um, a stranger to controversy on presidents, and in particular this president. Uh, During the last presidential election, she famously uh, called President Trump a faker. Uh, She later apologized, but she's certainly a woman who has been known to have opinions and has been known to make them known.
0: Yeah, exactly. She was, she was not shy. She might have been diminutive, even soft-spoken, but she was never shy. I think that's fair to say. Okay, many thanks now to Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Store and Bloomberg Law Supreme Court reporter Kimberly Strawbridge Robinson. This is a Bloomberg Law special looking back at the life, death, and legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg f- died from complications from pancreatic cancer at the age of 87, surrounded by her family at her home in Washington. Be sure to stay tuned to Bloomberg Radio in the days and weeks ahead as we bring you the latest on this story with what's sure to be a fierce fight in Washington over her replacement. Thank you very much for listening. I'm David Weston and this is Bloomberg.